Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from the Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to, went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Or may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sights of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a loud blast, they shall come up, into the, uh, come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And, the, and also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the mount to the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to dismiss the children. We have our children's church teachers come down and receive the kids. We're going to go to children's church. Second grade and under, if you're visiting with us, you have children that are under second grade or second grade and under we'd love for them to go back if you'd like to you can walk them back get them settled and then come on back out here with us if you'd like feel free to do that we have a great group going to teach the children
today and share the gospel with them. So thankful for them and their work and so thankful for those that are putting all the music together, Blake and Jenny and the whole team. Thank you for those in the back and the sound booth and does all they do. They get here early, they stay late, and uh, we can't thank them enough. The Lord's, uh, man, he's um, glorified through singing music, singing truth. And now we're going to try to preach truth. Exodus chapter 20. Last week we looked at the first commandment, and we're going to memorize these as we go through them. There's ten of them. Can you name them in order really quickly? If I gave you $1,000, could you do it? Uh, the children could do it, and the students could do it. And some of them are going, yeah, do it, do it. Um, uh, some of us adults are maybe a little bit behind the game, but uh, we're going to learn these as we go along, memorize them in order. So why do we need to memorize them in order? Well, because ignorance, it, ignorance is not a virtue. Not knowing something is not a good thing most of the time. And so we need to learn these commandments. We're going to learn them. And you can learn them easily by doing, doing numbers. We have little hand motions for them. They're real, real easy. The first one is just put up the number one. Put up the number one, Brian. There you go. Just one God. One God. That's it. One God, right? Have no other gods before me. One God, right? That's the, the first one. We saw that in, in Exodus chapter 20 last week. And, and Hunter read the context for us. Remember, the Israelites had been redeemed. And why were they redeemed? Why were they rescued from Egypt? To worship. To worship who? The one true living God. So they're rescued, redeemed from Egypt so they can worship God. The one true God. And they, they're traveling from Egypt. It's in the rearview mirror. And they're traveling towards the promised land. And on the way, they stop at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, where they're going to receive the law. And they're going to be camped here at the base of this mountain for 11 months where they're going to be receiving the law of God. God has commanded them to consecrate themselves, prepare to, to receive the law of the Lord. And last week we saw the Lord begin to speak to the people. And in the, this these 10 words, this Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, God speaks directly to the people. And we see at the end of chapter 20 that the people are, it's so, so awesome. There's smoke and there's thunder and there's lightning and the mountain is trembling. And God is going to deliver this, this message, these Ten Commandments to His people directly. And it was such an awesome sight. It was so incredible that the people were so afraid. Said, Moses, don't let God speak directly to us again. Let him speak to you, and you relay his law to us. And that's what we see after these Ten Commandments. That's what happens. Moses goes up on the mountain, receives the law, and he'll come down and deliver it to the people. But this is no small thing. And last week we looked at the first command, and God spoke all these words, saying, verse 2 of chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why do we, why do we obey him? Why should we even listen? Because I just rescued you people. I rescued you from the hand of Pharaoh. And he says, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But 
showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The first command tells us to worship the right God and Him alone. Baal, who the Moabites worshipped. Dagon, who the Philistines worshipped. Diana, also called Artemis, who the Ephesians worshipped. All of these are worship, but these gods are all forbidden by this first commandment. And we said last week, remember, we're worshipers by design. That's what we do. We're creating the image of God, and what we do, we're worshipers. We worship things because we give worth to something all the time. What do you give worth? What do you lean on? What do you love? What do you treasure? We worship, but we're to worship Him and Him alone. We're to worship God. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The nation of Israel worshiped Yahweh, the one true living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, because he redeemed them from the hands of Pharaoh. We worship God because he is our creator. And if you're in Christ, he's redeemed you, not from Pharaoh, but from sin and death. Now we get to the second commandment, and it tells us how to worship him. We may not worship God in the form of any man-made idol. Philip Reich, and he has a great commentary. I've been reading much these days. He says, the first commandment forbids us to worship false gods. The second commandment forbids us to worship the true God falsely. This awesome sight you see in, in Exodus 19 and 20, these mountain quaking, smoke, thunder, lightning, is an incredible display of God's power. They saw a lot of things at the base of that mountain, but they did not see God. And there's a reason for that. They saw smoke, they saw lightning, they heard thunder, but they didn't see God. See, the second command is a command that we not visually represent our Creator. And why is that? Why can we make some image that looks like what we think God would look like? Why do we not try to represent Him in a visual image? Think about that for a second. Why would we not do that? Well, because God has explained who He is, His character, in, not in pictures, but in words, in the Scriptures. By not showing us what He looks like, this a physical image, we can only conceive of Him as He's described in the Bible. 
See, God revealed himself in the spoken word, not in images seen. One God. Worship him only. The second command is it's real easy. JJ, real easy. You got two, right? You, like scissors, right? Don't carve idols, right? Yeah, it's easy. One God and number two, don't carve idols. We're going to memorize those. By the time we get to the tenth one, we're going to know them. We're going to run through and quiz you. There's two types of idolatry. Don't make idols. There's two types of Idols we'll talk about. The first has to do with physical images we mentioned earlier, Dagon, Baal, maybe uh, in, in East Asia, Pusa, in India, Vishnu, these images. And we have some images of some idols. And some of you maybe have never seen an idol before, maybe in pictures. That's one from Hong Kong in a temple in Hong Kong. And that's the money god, believe it or not. You see those in our city where we used to live. They, those were in almost every business it's a money God, believe it or not. It's a, an idol in Thailand. I think we have one more. No? Okay. Those are idols, right? Images carved by man made of stone or metal or plastic. And this is what we usually think of when we think about idolatry. And for us in the West, especially here in the South, we think it's pretty absurd to actually worship a man-made idol. But that was forbidden under commandment number one. One God, right? Only worship the one true God. But with, that, with the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the Creator God, is no assembly required, right? That's important when you have a God. If you've got to put it together, that's a bad thing. It's not good, right? No assembly required, right? If you have to fashion something or make something, you're, you're making something that's finite. But our God, the, the God of the Bible, is infinite in every way. And it's interesting, when you have an idol, it's, it's, it's finite, but also it's, you have control over it somewhat. We've seen time and time again, you go to these places and, and, and temples and shops, and they have these idols, and, and they put food before them. They put drink and food and they burn incense to them. But it's like you're doing this to, to get help from this God, right? But in some ways, if you have idols, if you're an idol worshiper and you worship something that's carved out of stone and, and, and wood, you have control over it. Because see, the idol there, guess what? It needs to be dusted. They get dirty, especially where we live. You've got to clean it. You've got to bring food to it. Sometimes you have to move it, Right? If it falls over and gets broken, you have to fix it, right? You're kind of in control of that God, that so-called deity. So the first type of idolatry is this carved image. It's what you think of as, as idols. And that's, like I said, that's forbidden in the first commandment. One God, no other gods before me, right? But the second type of idolatry is, is, is also been called ideolatry by some. And this type of idolatry refers to mental images or non-biblical ideas we attribute to God. And this is the one that we struggle with, I think, most of the time. What we do is we make God in our own image. You know, God's creator, he made us in his image. But what we try to do is make God into our own image or what we want him to be. I mean, think about it. We see an example of that in Israel's history. 
Chapter 32 of Exodus, the, the golden calf. You remember that story? Let's turn over to Exodus 32 real quick. Flip over right, just a few chapters there. Exodus 32, verse 1 through 6. What's happened here is Moses is up on the mountain, and he's been up there a long time. And they're like, man, Moses, is he ever coming down? He's been gone a long time. Chapter 32, verse 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Okay, take off your rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from the hand and fashioned it to a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The golden calf. Now, oftentimes when you think about this story, when this, this incident comes to your mind, you start thinking, well, they're making this calf. They're worshiping a calf, like some cow god or something. But that's not what they're doing. No, they're worshiping Yahweh, the God that brought them out of Egypt. No, they said that. Who brought us out of Egypt? Yahweh, the creator God, the God of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. Look at verse 5. Aaron says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the who? The Lord. That's in all caps. That's Yahweh, right? That's his covenantal name. They thought that restricting him to some image, this one being a cow, would satisfy their need for worship. And I can think about it. Why a cow? I mean, you know, if you're going to make something, I'd be thinking something like lion or eagle. But even those are going to, you have problems with those too, right? Yeah, because it's an idol. You're, you're, you're saying this is what God is like. You're making God into some image and you're going to worship the, the, the God of the Bible, in their case, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's this cow. Yeah, you can't do that. They fall way short of what God is like. They misrepresent and distort who God is. Deuteronomy chapter 4, is we see a, a, the second giving of the law. If you remember, the Israelites, they receive the law of God. They travel to the, to the edge of the promised land. Moses sent in 12 spies, one from each tribe. They come back with a report. This land is incredible, but the people are huge, and the cities are so fortified. There's no way we can take it. There was two, Joshua and Caleb, that was encouraging the people. The 10 spies discouraged the people so much so that they lost heart. They didn't trust the Lord. They said, we're not going into the promised land. And so what did they do? God made them wander in the, in the desert for 40 years until they all died. That whole generation died with the exception of Joshua and Caleb because they trusted the Lord. And they get up to the edge of the promised land again. Moses has passed away. Joshua's going to lead them across the Jordan into the promised land, and God's going to give them a land. 
But God first has to teach them the law. Parents didn't trust the Lord. You think they did a good job teaching their kids the law? Nah. So what does God do? He gives them the second rendering of the law. These sermons teach them how they should live when they get into the promised land. And this is what he says, Deuteronomy 4, verse 15 through 18. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. You saw no form. You, don't, you didn't see God's image. You didn't see his picture, what he looks like. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water under the earth. And that's, it's, it's, it's almost exactly what we see here in Exodus chapter 20. But you have that, that, you saw no form. You didn't see a picture. You didn't see his face. You didn't see what he looked like. So be careful and don't take anything that's created, right, to look like the creator. God reveals himself in words spoken, not in images seen. All that we need to know about God and what he's like is written in his word. And these images are insufficient, aren't they? I mean, that's why we don't have Protestant churches. You don't see a lot of crucifixes, a lot of portraits of what we think God's like. I mean, how are you going to portray the, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God? No matter what you do, it's going to fall short, is it not? Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36, Paul writes, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. His ways, they're unfathomable. How can you capture who God is and what he's like in an image, in a picture? You can't do it. Again, Philip Ryken puts it this way. To carve him into a piece of wood or stone is to deny his attributes, the essential characteristics of his divine being. An idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, the spiritual God material. In short, it makes him the exact opposite of what he actually is. Thus, the whole idea of idolatry rests on the absurdity of human beings trying to make their own image of God. An idol is not the truth, but a lie. It is a God who cannot see, know, act, love, or save. And who wants a God like that? No. We want a God who saves, who loves, right? Who acts on our behalf. Psalm 106, verse 19 and 20, speaking about this golden calf incident. They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox. You know what happened? The same thing happened. This is History repeats itself sometimes, doesn't it? The same thing that happened there at the, the mount, the bottom of the mountain there at Horeb happened again 500 years later. The kingdom of, of 
of Israel had been split. David's grandson Rehoboam wasn't a good leader. The kingdom split. And so you have the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And the first king of the northern kingdom was Jeroboam. Keep in mind, north and south is split. Well, Jeroboam, he didn't want the people from the northern tribes to travel south to go to the place that God had ordained them to go to worship where the temple was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the southern part. We don't want our people going there. So what do you think he did? He didn't make one calf. He made two. And he put them in two different locations. He wanted to be real convenient for the people to be able to go worship, but he didn't want to go to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, where they should go to worship. And he made God into an image. Again, did the same thing they did at Mount Horeb. 1 Kings 12, 28, 29. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Same, same, same story, right? And he set one up in Bethel and one up in Dan. This, then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to, to be before one. One of these so-called images of God. So Jeroboam, he broke the second command. He led his, his nation, the northern kingdom, to do the same. Don't make for, for yourself an idol. Or in the King James, it says, don't make for yourself a graven image. This graven image is merely the fruit from a tree that's sick. The root of the problem is a heart that wants to make this incomprehensible God understandable. But the visual, the images we all seek and want to, want to be able to see should never eclipse the verbal word of God. John Calvin said the human heart is an, is is an idol-making factory. What does that look like for us today? You think, well, I don't really, I don't really have a problem with Pusa and Vishnu. <laughs> I don't worship those things. But do we make God into our own image? I think that's where we struggle. Have you ever heard someone say things like this? And this is where we fail. I've always thought of God as being a God who finish the sentence right unless you're going to quote scripture at, at the end of that sentence you're most likely going to violate the second commandment God's a God of love I don't think God would finish the sentence unless you're going to quote scripture you're probably about to violate the second commandment God wouldn't sin good people to hell because finish the sentence. Unless you're going to quote scripture, you're probably going to violate the second commandment. God wants us to be happy. Finish the sentence. Unless you're fixing to quote scripture, you're about to violate the second commandment.
talk to these roughnecks around here. You know the old man upstairs? I'm a preacher, you know. They call me the preacher man or whatever. They want to talk to you about church or the Bible or something. Yeah, the old man upstairs, something, 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 something. What's that mean? He's the old man upstairs. He's either grumpy or impotent or both. Neither one of them are right. Because God's not grumpy and he's not impotent. He's loving and just and he's all-powerful. See, that's how we, that's where we go wrong, probably most likely with the second commandment. In the Bible, it provides the substance and the form of our worship. So we worship how? We worship in spirit and in truth. We sing truth. We did that today. Man, I'm so thankful for this worship team. We study truth. We pray truth because we want to worship Him rightly the way He has ordained for us to worship in His Word. If we're worshiping a, a, with a false understanding of who God is, making God into our own image, then God's glory is being given to another. To worship the God we have conceived in our minds breaks the second commandment. When we worship the God we prefer, we commit idolatry. And what we think about God, what we know about God, what we think about God is really, really important. A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Second point. First was the two types of idolatry. We talked about that. The second point from our text, the reason God forbids idolatry is in verse 5, because he's a jealous God. He's a jealous God. Now, at first glance, when you think about jealousy, that that's probably has negative connotations for you, right? Usually it is. But godly jealousy is not this insecure, this possessive human jealousy that, that we often think about. You know, like a, a you have this really possessive, controlling husband and he gets, he gets mad every time his wife even talks to another man, you know, and he, they come home from work and say, who'd you talk to at work today? Da, 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 da. And usually, why, why is the man so controlling? Why is he so jealous? This negative human jealousy is because probably he's been unfaithful to his wife, been run around on her, he thinks she's probably doing the same, right? He's not very trust, trusting because he's not very trustworthy. Yeah, that's not what it means when we say God is jealous. So, it's this intensely, this, this caring devotion to those that he loves. Like a, similar to a mother's jealous protection of her children or a father's jealous protection of his home. And the more devoted, think about it, the more devoted and loving a husband is, the more jealous one is when his wife is unfaithful. And so think about God. He's so faithful and he's so loving but he won't share his glory with another, with a false God or a false understanding of who he is. Someone brought this up. Tuesday, we have a small group leaders meeting. Someone brought up 2 Samuel 6, talking about God being jealous. This is during the time of, of King David, and he's been warring with the Philistines, and the Philistines had captured the ark. Someone boneheaded priest took the ark thinking it's like a good luck charm out to, to battle. Well, the ark got captured by the Philistines. Bad idea, Philistines, because they got all of them got sick. They had tumors breaking out all over them. 
And so they want to send it back. They didn't want the, they didn't want the Ark of the Covenant anymore. They were trying to give it back to Israel. And eventually, David's going to bring the Ark back, the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And it's, it's on a cart, a wagon of sorts, right? A trailer. And, and it's been at this guy's house, and his son's name's Uzzah. And Uzzah is, is there beside the cart. And the, the, the oxen that's pulling the cart slipped, stumbled. And the ark teetered. And so what he did is what you and I probably would do. And he reached out and touched it, catch it, make sure he didn't fall. That's probably a good thing, right? Wrong. And what happened to Uzzah? He was struck dead. You think, man, that's, that's harsh. Come on, God, that's kind of harsh. Come on, the guy's just trying to keep the ark on the cart, you know? Kind of harsh. But God's a jealous God. That ark of the covenant, how's it to be handled? Do you remember? Yeah, poles, loops in the side. You slip the poles through the loops on the side. You don't touch the ark. And who carries the ark? Who handles it? Levites. That's right. So Uzzah was wrong. And he died as a result of it. God is a jealous God. Worship me. You worship me like I tell you to worship me. Don't worship me wrongly. He's a jealous God. He will not give his glory to another. Third point from our text, verse 5 and 6. Cursings and blessings of disobedience and obedience. You should not bow to them or bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of all those who hate me. Now again, you think, wow, well, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? You got the fathers being punished for their hating God. And, and two, th these words here, hate and love, you'll see hate, and in a minute you're going to see in verse 6, love. He's going to give blessings out on those who love him to the thousandth generation. Hate and love, you could also substitute for obedience and disobedience. These fathers are being cursed, being judged for their disobedience, but the children going forward three or four generations will also be judged. And some say, well, that's not fair. That's not right. Well, God is always right. He's always just. And some would even quote Ezekiel 18, 20, um, where he says, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor the father share the guilt of the son. And for some of us, we're like, man, that's a great thing. I'm not being punished for my, my daddy's sins, right? Yeah. Many, many misunderstand this text. God is just. He never punishes the innocent. He punishes the guilty. And notice what it says in verse 5, that the, those who are punished are those who hate me. So it's not just the fathers who hate them, who disobey them, who don't trust them, who are idolaters. No. Their children are idolaters too. And what happens? They will be judged as well, like father, like son. They're idolaters, so what happens? More times than not, your children are idolaters, and their children are idolaters, and their children are idolaters. Yeah. Generational sin, passing it down the line, right? The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. If you continue to disobey me and hate me just like your father, you'll be cursed just like him. See, idol worshipers will be judged. We don't have time to look at the New Testament text. You'll do that probably in your, in your small groups. But blessings 
are promised to those who love him. Isn't that awesome? It supersedes the curses as these these blessings, they don't last three or four generations. No, thousands of generations. That means forever, right? That was the meaning in Genesis 17, 7 when God promised Abraham, made a covenant with him. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. It's an everlasting. That's what it means. It's going to look care on forever. And for some of you, you think, man, you're, maybe you're discouraged by your own legacy. Man, your, your, your family, they didn't bring you up to love the Lord and to know the Lord and know the scriptures. You come from a long line of idolaters and you're discouraged and not really sure about the effects that will have on you, your children. Well, remember, God's blessings triumphs over God's curse. That happened with Abraham. You know, Abraham, his family, they were idolaters. But what happened to Abraham? He trusted God and was credited to him as righteousness. God called him to leave behind his idolatry and he trusted God. How do we apply this text? What do we do with this? Second commandment, don't carve, right? Second commandment, don't carve any idols, right? What do we do with this? Well, firstly, rather than remaking God into our our image, we need to be remade into his image. And how does this happen? The first thing that happens is he brings us into a personal saving relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. See, God wants to mold and make us in his image, but the first step to that is for us, we have to repent of our sin. Acknowledging we're sinful, we've been in rebellion against him, we are idolaters. We also recognize, even though we're sinful, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, took on flesh. He lived the life that we must live. He lived perfectly for us. And he died a death that we should die. He was separated from the Father. The Father poured out his wrath upon the Son when he was on the cross. He died. He was buried. On the third day, the Bible says he was raised for our justification. And the Bible tells us that if we will repent and, and trust Christ's work on the cross as our own, we'll be forgiven. We'll be given the Holy Spirit. And what happens when we give him the Holy Spirit? The Lord begins to sanctify us and make us into his image. So if you're here and you've never repented, I want to encourage you to repent and trust Christ. If you're like, I'm not really sure how to do that. I recognize that I haven't repented, but I want to know how to do that. I would love to talk to you about that. If you're in a small group, your small group leader would love to talk to you about how to do that. The second thing, Remember, faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17, right? Faith doesn't come by seeing. And in God's infinite wisdom, this is how he chose to reveal himself. Hey, this is how he, this is how he chose to reveal himself. Through his written word. Through the word written, not through images seen. So our worship, when we come to church, what we do on Sunday morning has to be word-centered. The music that we sing has to be word-centered. The things we do need to be word-centered. Small groups, it needs to be word-centered. And then along with that is we need to study and read and know the Bible because this is how we know what God is like. 
How do I know if I'm a doctor? How do I know if the things I'm thinking about the Lord are, are, are right and true? We've got to read the Bible. How many of you read the Bible enough this week? Raise your hand. Stand up. If you read the Bible enough this week, there you go. No, we, we can't get enough of it. Reading the Bible and not reading the Bible to be legalist. Say, I've read the Bible today. You know, it makes me a good person or whatever. We're not, this isn't rungs on a ladder to be climbed. This is the, the will of God, and we just need to study and know the, the Word. I didn't study the Word enough this week. How do we know God's will? How do we know God's character? How do we know what God's like right here? Come up with some picture of what it might look like. No, we don't. Ah, that's idolatry. We do this. We do this. Colossians 1, 15, 16, and then we're going to close. We want to rightly worship God. And we want to rightly worship Jesus. Anytime you see he or him, it's Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. So wonderful, we get to read the Bible. Wonder what God thinks about this. Wonder how God would handle that situation. Wonder if God, uh, Jesus took on flesh and he walked this earth. And we have these wonderful accounts in the gospel that tell us what Jesus did. Oh, look what Jesus did. Look how Jesus handled that. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We don't try to draw a picture to think what it looks like. He had the beard. We know he had a beard. He had dark hair. He had olive skin. He had da 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 da. It doesn't matter, right? If we had a picture of him, what would we be doing? We'd be doing what a lot of people be doing. We'd be bowing down and looking stupid, right? Committing idolatry. So what do we do? We preach Christ. We teach Christ. We sing Christ. And we use words. We use words, not images. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because you've given us these ten words, these commandments. Father, we're thankful. We need direction. We need help. We need to know how to worship you. We need to know your character. We need to know your will. Father, we don't want to put other gods before us. We want to worship you and you alone. And Father, if we... Put other things before you, pleasure, money, job, people. Father, may you bring conviction upon your church. Discipline us, Lord, so we could repent and worship you only. And Father, we, we don't have a lot of problem with bowing down to carved images made of stone or wood. But Father, we, we oftentimes... Don't think rightly about who you are. And what we worship is not the creator God we see in the Bible, but it's figments of our imagination. We try to make you into our own image, Father. We ask that you would discipline us, your church, when we do that. Help us to worship you rightly. Father, as 
we meet in small groups this week and next Sunday. May you use small group leaders in the teaching time to, to help help us understand this second commandment. Father, we are thankful for your word. You haven't left us hanging. Lord, everything we need to know about you is found in your scriptures. What a blessing. You've given us your revealed will in written form. Father, we have it in our language and translations that are easy to understand. What a blessing. Father, may we be people of your word. May this week we hunger and thirst for it. Not so we can be smart, but Lord, so we can know you, our creator and our savior. And Father, if there's anyone here who are idolaters and have yet to repent and trust you, I pray that you would open up their spiritual eyes and ears to see their sin, to see your goodness. Lord, that they would want to know you more than all things. Father, would you save sinners even today? Father, for those that aren't here, Lord, there's some that are home. There's some that are taking care of sick family members. There's some that are traveling. We pray for grace for our church family. For all the things, the plans we have for the week, all the things we have scheduled, we pray that your blessings will be upon us. That would be looking for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with those who need to hear it. That would be your hands and feet. would be lovers of people and not lovers only of ourselves. Help your church to give you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to our Sunday morning services at Beaver Baptist Church. We are currently studying the book of Exodus. If you have any questions about today's message, or would like more information about our church, call us at 901-837-2904. You can also visit our website at beaverbaptist.com.